Sequel Quest, episode 92, a sequel to Ghostbusters 2016. Welcome to Sequel Quest, the podcast where Adam, Jeff, and Jeremy invite you on a cinematic adventure to create prequels, sequels, and reboots to your favorite movie franchises. Joined by special guests along the way, Sequel Quest is go for launch. So let the adventure begin now. One movie rocked the internet to its core, causing upheavals of biblical proportions, real Wrath of God type stuff, all throughout cyberspace that pit brother against sister, movie fan against movie fan, suddenly it was dogs and cats living together, mass hysteria, that set YouTube comment sections aflame. This movie was Ghostbusters, answer the call. With outrage normally reserved for political elections or the launch of a new Star Wars film, people, mostly 30-something dudes, took to their keyboards to protest what they felt was a betrayal of their childhoods, a studio displaying a total lack of respect for the franchise and its loyal fan base. At the core of this cinematic debate was a simple question. Can women be accepted in the role of comedic paranormal investigators and eliminators? With an ideological fury, a vocal minority refused to accept this cast of female comedians, while others rallied behind these ghost-busting gals simply to fly in the face of such misogynistic bullying. Ultimately, the box office was the judge and jury. With the film failing to earn big bucks, it seemed a sequel was unlikely. The announcement just weeks ago of a new Ghostbusters film to be released in 2020, helmed by Jason Reitman, son of the original film's director Ivan Reitman, was the final nail in the coffin forged by Paul Feig. But what if the female Ghostbusters crew had been brought back for one more supernatural adventure? When a movie's fake, but it might be good. Who you gonna call? Sequel Quest! One too many syllables there, I think. <laughs> So allow me to introduce you to our crew of paranormal podcasters tonight. First, it's the man who may or may not have a pet dog named my cat. It's Jeff. <laughs> yep, that's me. Jeremy could not join us tonight. He's out on a call handling a haunted ATM machine. But here and currently on the run from a freaky possessed mannequin, I'm Adam. And back tonight for their third appearance on the Sequel Quest podcast, it's two ladies who are just looking for a reasonable ratio of wonton to broth. Welcome, Emily and Kristen. How's it going? Good. Good night. (laughs) (laughs) Now, ladies, we're hoping that the third time's a charm here, because your first appearance as part of our Jupiter Ascending sequel discussion a couple years back continues to be our most popular episode in the archives. Really? Yeah. Who knows why? It's not even close, too. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) But your return to pitch a sequel to Scott Pilgrim vs. the World this time last year went virtually unnoticed. So (laughs) we're hoping that stirring up some controversy is going to grab some ears for this podcast. Speaking of past episodes, longtime listeners may recall that we actually pitched a Ghostbusters 3 with the original cast back in episode 22 of Sequel Quest, which actually released the same week that this reboot hit theaters. So you can go back and check out that in audio form 
form, but actually preferred our special video format. It was a very special episode indeed, so that's on our YouTube page. Just check out Sequel Quest there. You'll be able to see us if you dare. With that out of the way, this is uh, an exciting discussion we are primed for tonight, for sure. We could spend an hour and a half just on the, uh, the controversy and politics of it all. But before we get into Ghostbusters 2016 itself, our thoughts and other people's thoughts, uh, let's start out just as a baseline for each of us. How much do you enjoy the original Ghostbusters movies from 1984 and 1989, respectively? Kristen, how about you? Well, I grew up with them. They, I am slightly old enough to remember when they were new and popular, and I think it helped that I had an older teenage brother who was very into Ghostbusters and had the action figures and kind of made it a more everyday side around the house. We had the Saturday morning cartoons and saw, you know, the lunch pails. So to me, Ghostbusters is a pretty iconic part of my childhood. I went through a huge gap where I hadn't watched the movie in years and years and years and then rewatched it as an adult and understood, oh, 70% more of the referential humor (laughs) than I had as a kid. (laughs) And I genuinely enjoy them as an adult, too. Very nice. Emily, how about you? I know that I saw at least the first one when I was a kid at some point, but I didn't don't remember a whole lot about it to the point that later on, I think when when we were in college, Kristen, I remember like flipping the channels and suddenly seeing the scene where I am the gatekeeper. I am the the key master and being (laughs) completely baffled and just thinking it was the funniest thing I'd ever seen in my life, because if that is the only thing you're seeing from the movie, it's what the heck is going on here? Um, but uh, it is such an iconic thing that things like the Stay Puft Marshmallow Man, the car, I don't remember what it's called, you know, elements like that are still really familiar and something that I'm going to recognize. I, I watched the cartoon when I was a kid, too, but I didn't remember any of their names except for Egon, because Egon is a very, very memorable name. Interesting. Okay, Jeff, how about you? Well, for me, I feel like we did talk a little bit, at least about the fact that I feel like I watched this one time as a kid and it scared the heck out of me. So I never watched it again until I was maybe in my 20s. And then I watched the cartoon show because it used to be right around the same time as G.I. Joe. And there was one episode where they go into a haunted house and they all kind of get freaked out. And that messed with me. I don't know what it was about that sort of a thing. So as a kid and a teenager, I was not a fan of this at all. And it wasn't until I was an adult going back and watching it that I appreciate. I mean, I love the the four comedians that are in it. I don't know if Harold Ramis counts as a comedian. Even even Ernie Hudson, even though he's my favorite. Is Ernie Hudson, uh, is he a comedian? Well, maybe not. Two comedians and a couple other guys. I I love all four of them, though, so I, I definitely appreciate it. But as far as in my, like, personal connection to it it's it's not actually that high because of that it's it's maybe a step below three amigos for me oh interesting (laughs) okay because i mean obviously for me these are these are top 10 movies in my life both of them i especially enjoy ghostbusters 2 though i'll admit the original is more edgy and cool but there is a genuine charisma and a camaraderie between those actors that just 
can't be manufactured, I feel, has not ever been duplicated. But I, just like you guys, big fan of the real Ghostbusters cartoon series, Mm -hmm. had a whole bunch of the Kenner action figures, had a toy proton pack that I would wear around. I have a picture of me in Batman pajamas with my proton pack running around. My family threw me a Ghostbusters birthday party when I turned six. I even took my wife to a screening of the first film in theaters when we were dating, you know, in the 21st century. Uh, where uh, cosplaying members of the Arizona Ghostbusters were attending their gear. So, like, these are major, major for me. I mean, I, I continue to have, I mean, my car is still decked out in Ghostbusters paraphernalia. Oh, so wow. it's an Ecto Prius. I still drive it around to this day. So, I mean, it's, uh, I wear it proudly. I, I enjoy a novelty shirt, you know, or a, a themed uh, movie t-shirt. And most of the ones I have are Ghostbusters. I'm wearing one right now. So it, it definitely, it sticks with me very deeply. And so that's what I was curious to hear for you guys then, just based on your, your, you enjoyed them, your general familiarity. When you first found out that there was going to be a new Ghostbusters film, can you, if you could take yourself back, you know, two and a half years or so, what was your impression of that idea? Oh, a new Ghostbusters? What did that mean to you? Well, I can't remember much about what I first heard other than people were really negative right off the bat. And I think that I was pretty down with it because, you know, it's a cool thing to try. And I like seeing more female-led movies, (laughs) but I didn't feel, like, offended or anything. And I was just kind of like, oh, okay, that could be interesting. I remember being a little bit surprised because I felt that people were taking sides and stances immediately about a movie that we didn't even have a preview for. But, you know, for me, it was supposed to be something to look forward to and think, yes, the summer blockbuster, it's going to have Melissa McCarthy, who I think is amazingly hilarious. It's going to have really good special effects. They're going to have the opportunity to do everything that they couldn't do with the originals just because of the difference in technology. So it should have been something that was purely excitement-based, but instead... Like Emily said, it got surprisingly negative really early in the game. Yes, that is very true. And and speaking of that, I went back to the YouTube comments for the trailers when they dropped, and I pulled just a few of these out there to give you a taste. Now, I will mention that a lot of people commented, hey, thanks for deleting all my other comments, Sony. You know, so like, apparently they're, you know, probably some inappropriate stuff. But here's one. This says... uh, Forced feminism plus total reboot and awful PR marketing campaign. No thanks, I won't watch it. Besides, I don't believe that this is a serious movie project anyway. It's more something along those lines of springtime for Hitler. That kind of scam. They want this to fail, because I've never seen a worse promotional PR campaign than this one. They're pushing female cast down our throats, even though the fan base mostly consists of men, and they constantly are biting the hand that feeds them by insulting their potential audience. Something so brainless, so tactless, can't be said without some hidden goal in mind. <laughs> wow. Yeah. I was well, it was comprehensive. Yes. I'll give him that. He covered many, many hateful, hateful bases. I'm I'm actually really impressed he brought in Springtime for Hitler. There That's you go. The producer's <laughs> reference, yes. Now, what happened was, so there were a lot of those types of comments, obviously, but it, it actually has 1.1 million dislikes. 
the first trailer that dropped. And so someone made a comment, isn't there a law stating that if a trailer gets 1 million dislikes, the movie gets canceled? If not, there should be. We could call it the 2016 Ghostbusters law. (laughs) Another one here. This movie is an insult to the original classic. The all-female cast is revolting. Probably an attempt to, quote, empower women. Shameful, right? Who would want that? Yeah, one last one here, just along those lines. Why can't they at least cast sexy girls? That's about, sums it all up. Yeah. (laughs) I I think that's a representative. Pretty much. And, you know, there are a few people along Kristen's lines saying, hey, well, you you haven't even seen it yet. How can you judge it? But the truth is that two years later now, people are actually going back. Like, there are comments from a week ago, from four days ago, and people are still trashing the movie to this day. Like, it's a mecca for just letting your venom and your hatred out. And that's crazy to me because I can't think of any movie that I genuinely hated. And I hated Starship Troopers. Like, Freddie Prince Jr. owes me admission, popcorn, and interest, and probably, like, a punch in the throat, because I just... And gas money. No, it wasn't Starship Troopers. What was it? Anyway, it was the Freddie Prince Jr. one. Time and Wing Commander. Wing Commander! Oh, (laughs) hatred. But I never would spend that much time and energy tracking down ways to, like, articulately slam in all manner of horrible ways personal character attacks each individual involved it's baffling yeah it's pretty crazy now jeff i don't know about for you since you were like die hard with the with the fandom for this film did you have any apprehension or did you even have any interest in this movie coming out i'm well and that's i think there's two things here is that one Other than people like you, Adam, I don't think that this movie, the original Ghostbusters, has that place in, like, Americana where don't you dare remake this movie. Like, I don't think it is classic, like, from the 80s and et cetera, et cetera, but this level of any remake is going to have this much venom attached. My guess is most of these people that were this upset were not that close to the original Ghostbusters, that they so revered the brilliance of Bill Murray that how dare you slander his... Like, I don't think that's what it was. I think, honestly, it's 2016. It's the era that we were living in and all the stuff that went down in 2016 that really created that environment of of almost like people feeling that their way of life was being threatened. And then this movie took the brunt of that in a lot of ways. And I mean, like, you know, Hillary Clinton running for president scared a lot of people. And I think this movie kind of symbolized that in some ways, ironically. Because for me, like, the bottom line is, is that, like, I mean, not even talking about actually having seen the movie, but when I looked at it and I was just like, all right, like, I'm not really that excited about these four comedians. If they would have been four male comedians of similar style and stature, I wouldn't have been that excited about that one either. It didn't look like they were going to bring anything new. So I was just kind of like, why are you remaking this? It doesn't seem like you're helping anything. And to be perfectly honest, using women almost felt like a like a gimmick. Because they didn't feel like they made it more feminine and they didn't feel like they let them shine in their own characters. It felt like it was just a straight up reboot. But hey, maybe if we make them women, it'll get people to show up. And for me, that was what bugged me is that I felt like it didn't get a fair shake for those reasons. 
Yeah, and, and to your point about, you know, this was 2016, how much the world changes in just two years. Literally now, all the comments have a preface. Look, I don't hate this movie because it stars women. I hate <laughs> this movie because it sucks. You know, like, so like every comment that's trash get prefaces that. Because if you think like in this post me too world like 2018 man that knocked a lot of people down a couple pegs and they know that making those types of comments does not fly anymore shouldn't have flown two years ago but especially not now like there's nobody that will rally behind you you will <laughs> become the enemy immediately you know but like for me like I, I went into the film back then with a healthy amount of skepticism mostly because male or female I didn't want a reboot you know right. as the, as the super fan i wanted the original cast in action one last time <laughs> and fair. who was to blame for getting my hopes up for 25 years dan Aykroyd, right. because he had been teasing over and over again i have a script for ghostbusters 3 we're just working out some details we're doing some rewrites we're doing this bill murray is kind of a holdout right now but we're sure we can give him something he would like blah 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 then harold ramus died and so did kind of the hope for the original cast being reunited but then there were also kind of rumors about, oh, well, there's going to be one where, like, the remaining Ghostbusters pass it on to a new generation. Names like, you know, Jonah Hill and things like that were being thrown around. And ultimately, it feels like that coalesced into a movie called The Watch with Vince Vaughn and Ben Stiller. Jonah Hill, I don't know if you guys remember that, where they're busting aliens instead of ghosts. And then this came out of nowhere, and it looked pretty tame. And then they merchandised the film. They had action figures and they had some books. Like I have the Ghostbusters handbook that was released in 2016 right here with them on the cover. I was more into the food tie-ins. And I don't know if you remember seeing any of these <laughs> things on shelves, but they had the green ectoplasm filling for Slimer-themed mm. Twinkies. They covered Twinkies and Fudge White Marshmallow for the Stay Puft Marshmallow Man. You know, he was on the box. And then my big quest, like whether or not the movie was any good, I was just happy that they were re-releasing High C Ecto Cooler. Ecto Cooler. <laughs> there it is. I mean, it was rumored. <laughs> images are surfacing online of aluminum cans and juice boxes. And I literally for months was checking every grocery store i drove by in multiple cities all throughout arizona whenever we'd travel anywhere i'd go in i was bugging people at walmart they had no idea what i'm talking about and then a friend on facebook finally spotted a display that was at a market just down the street from me i bought half the stack <laughs> brought it home and spent the latter half of 2016 drinking only ecto cooler with my oh. meals and i never got tired of it it was delicious <laughs> Thank you for it. Yes. Exactly. But the, the real smart people, they froze it. So they, they put their cans in the freezer so that they could then defrost it after the expiration date. I was like, ah, if only I'd been that clever. Or you could just, like, save the box and put Gatorade in it and never know the difference. No. Amazing. No, not the same. Not the same. <laughs> so this is my question, though. I, I feel like recently, like, with female-led action films... Even though Mad Max, Fury Road, Mad Max is the title. I mean, I think that was a Furiosa film. I mean, it was really, she was the big breakout of that. Charlize Theron doing that. Redeeming herself from Eon Flux, you know, which was not so good. A step back, perhaps. But I, I feel like Sony thought that Hollywood had cracked the code of female-led comedies because Bridesmaids was such a big hit. But I feel like there hadn't been a female 
ensemble comedy that hit big since like nine to five with Dolly Parton and Jane Fonda, Lily Tomlin, 1980. So it was more of an anomaly than a sure thing. When did Ocean's Eight, whatever that was, was that? That was last year. That's more recent. That was more recent. Well, I think too, Adam, to your point, like, I don't know if it was a miscalculation by the studio or whatever it is. But I think that the tough part is, in any form, remaking Ghostbusters today is the comedy landscape has changed. I mean, the popular comedies are not, you know, the buddy, whatever, like that sort of. It's the R-rated comedies. I mean, Melissa McCarthy has made her living by being raunchy and be like, that's her character. And to have kind of like a, maybe not family friendly, but pretty darn close. Like, I, I just feel like, I don't know, it was just the wrong time. Well, especially because when you look at the actual humor in the original Ghostbusters movies, that doesn't translate in the same tone. I mean, right. the whole gatekeeper, um, the fact that a woman is possessed and made to act a little more scandalously than she would have chosen had she not been possessed with a man she would not have chosen to hook up with. You know, the things that are fundamental parts of the original comedy that work within the context of the time wouldn't fly when you already have a very gender-conscious atmosphere of trying to remake this movie with female leads. And so you hobble a lot of the quirky, raunchy flow that Paul Freig as a director really got these ladies into, most of whom worked together on Bridesmaids. Well, I guess guess, uh, Kirsten Wiig and Melissa McCarthy did Uh, pretty much exclusively, but, you know, the very self-consciousness that was at the heart of the movie is what held back a lot of their comedic potential in some ways. I still think they did a lot that was hilarious, but it was way more understated and lacked some of the overt punchline nature that the original had. How do you feel about that, Emily? Like, when you actually finally got to see the film, ha- having been aware of it, like, does it s- stick with you? Is it, the, do, you, do you still laugh at it? Did you laugh at it at the time? When we went and saw it in theaters, I wasn't expecting a whole lot. And when it started, I, w- I was, like, laughing hysterically throughout the movie. Like, I laughed so hard that I cried. And I do not actually do that very often. I think I laughed so hard that my stomach hurt. It had been a really long time since that happened. So I loved it. I thought it was hilarious. And the people who say things in in the comments like that it's not even funny really need to remember that humor is a very subjective thing. You don't think it's funny? Fine. You don't think it's funny. I thought it was fantastic. I really, really enjoyed the humor. Um, But like Kristen said, it was very understated in a lot of ways. And it's a very awkward humor, which not everyone likes. And if you're going into a movie angry, it's really difficult to be amused. It's hard to laugh, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Go ahead. Make me laugh. Yeah, well, that's what's interesting because, you know, obviously my wife is friends with both of you. I think you might have a similar sensibility. And when she saw this, you know, we went opening weekend, we got the poster, we got the pins, you know, they were giving us all the stuff and she loved it. And walking out of the theater, she actually said she wanted to buy Ghostbusters as soon as it came out on Blu-ray and she never buys movies. And then she's like, actually, I openly dislike the original Ghostbusters, which she had never told me 
before I took her scene. Yeah, she's keeping that from me. Uh, but but this was right up rally because again, like Melissa McCarthy, she loves all her non R rated roles and her TV show and everything else. Like she just thinks Melissa McCarthy is it. And so like it was all a hundred percent what she would want out of a Ghostbusters movie if she had to see a Ghostbusters movie. And I only got one major chuckle out of the whole film while watching it that first time. And it was just that scene in the Dean's office that Dean is hilarious, you know, but when uh, Melissa McCarthy's like, you're only Dean now because the last Dean went to jail. He's like, are you saying I'm not qualified? You spell science with a Y. And what's upsetting about that is I don't think you know that that's wrong. <laughs> like, so, I mean, that, that, they had a few good lines there. But I actually, I walked out of it saying it was more cool than it was funny. Like, I liked all the new ghost entrapment gear, and there were some genuinely creepy moments, like with the mannequin and the ghosts and the mirrors, you know, so there was a lot of cool design work, but just a lot of the comedy fell flat for me. It always felt like it was a few beats off, and that was something I had to warm up to after multiple viewings on DVD and say, okay, now I understand the rhythm of the film, but at the time, I was not prepared for it. But how about you, Jeff? The tough thing for me is, especially after seeing the trailers, I felt like all the potentially funny bits were in the trailer. Like, I felt like Leslie Jones could have stolen the show, but I felt like all her funniest stuff was in the trailer. So I might have laughed at the trailer, but then I saw it six times, and by the time we got to the movie, it it was just kind of like, well, I've heard this already. Uh, And then at least for me, like... It might not be overstating to say that what's his toes? Chris Thor, Hemsworth. Chris Hemsworth <laughs> may have ruined the movie for me. What? He was horrendous. Like his whole dance sequence, which one they edited it for time, which made it make no sense in the actual flow. And if you watch the extended version, oh, it was so cringy, and I was just like, yeah. And and for me to make him the like major bad guy, I don't know. That was the other part, too, is it felt like a female-led cast, well, but we still got to get the guy without a shirt on with the biggest role or the biggest, like, bad guy. And, yeah, that, that I don't know, he he just did not work for me. Okay, so this is my question for you, Jeff, because, again, I thought Chris Hemsworth showing us his comedic side before Thor Ragnarok, he, he was like, oh, he's hilarious, and we didn't know, and it was a big surprise. A lot of people said, oh, he's the best part of the movie. But what does your wife say, Jeff? So does Judy like this movie? No, no. She <laughs> wanted to stop watching it as, you know, we, we kind of had to force ourselves to finish. And she she was kind of the one, too, that every time he showed up, she was kind of like, oh, this guy again? And she loves Thor Ragnarok, I should point out. So okay. it's not it's not him as an actor. Just that way that role was written and performed. Okay. Because I feel like one of the biggest issues, ultimately, with the film, because, it, it, again, like I said, I've warmed up to it. I actually do get a lot of chuckles out of it. I think Holtzman's speech at the end is very emotional, awkward, yet emotional. I, I think there's some great moments in the film. But it felt to me like Paul Feig inserted so many references to the original, both in structure and just like Easter eggs and things that are peppered throughout that it forces us to draw comparisons instead of seeing the film on its own terms, which are actually very creative because I, I feel like it would have been much better to, you know, just do a complete reimagining with just a few slight tweaks to the original plot, you know, 
uh, and the, but the characters, if you really look at them, they're not exact analogs to to the original Ghostbusters. I mean, the Abby and Aaron relationship is very different. There's not really a Venkman. The only one you have is an Egon. You know, Holtzman obviously Egon. You know, if you want to say based on race that Patty is the Winston, then I guess you could say that. But character wise, she's not you know him. So I I, I just I think like they're all useful in their own ways i think they're written well and everything i just think that the way they approached it just didn't give it a chance to stand on its own it's hard to revisit it with any kind of subjectivity because you know going into the movie you're either on board with a female-led cast and i think that still you know retains some effect on whether or not you're going to enjoy yourself or not i was going with you know low expectations because it was going to be a good action movie and so the comedy was a really pleasant surprise and the characters were interesting but it was always a comparison to the original in some way or other and so I think there were some areas where the characters could have been pushed further individually I would have loved to see a little bit more out of Aaron I think that this was probably one of the most restrained roles I've ever seen Kristen Wiig in. I feel like for an actress with quite a lot of character potential from all of her work on Saturday Night Live, she played really like third or fourth fiddle and and was surrounded by other characters who could step up more. Yeah, and ultimately, though, it was almost structured as her movie, but you're right, she kind of fades into the background a little bit. She just does a little awkward flirting here and there, and that's kind of her main humor that she brings to the table, and and everybody else kind of really takes it to the next level, shouts in your face, quite literally, in a lot of cases, to get your attention. So, all right, well, I guess... The, the truth is, according to the, the DVD packaging here, it is certified fresh on Rotten Tomatoes. So despite, you know, initial assumptions, at least critics or the general melding of critics and uh, both professional and otherwise seems to have turned in its favor somewhat although i don't know how much that was manipulated just to please buy this movie but it is currently in the five dollar bin at walmart so that's also saying something you know we we got the extended edition that jeff mentioned but i don't know that this universe is going to be revisited unfortunately so that's what we are here to discuss tonight is had we given it more of a chance again maybe had it been released this year with a different kind of build-up would we be more apt to say yes let's see because even at the end of this movie they left it open the final end credits scene you know you have patty there listening to something and she says What's Zool? Oh, setting it up. But again, I didn't like that because I'm like, you're going back to the old movie again. Do something original. You guys are creative. Let your let your freak flag fly. Do your thing. So with that, why don't we jump into the pitches here and let's find out where we would take it. So Emily and Kristen, wow us. Well, there were some elements that we wanted to keep consistent with this movie and you know, as you mentioned, with the cutscene, we went with the decision to honor what seems to be the original intent, which was to incorporate original Ghostbuster lore with some of the lore we see 
from the comics and the general universe and some of the fundamental bad guys and the powers that are working behind the scenes to cause these phenomenon. So we decided to pick up more or less where the cutscene left off and move forward from there. So we would begin the movie with a flashback scene from 2000. It's a park with a six-year-old boy and girl playing around with those dangerous merry-go-rounds that kids can actually fall off of while their kindly-looking grandparents are looking on. And the kids are singing a cute nursery rhyme, not really attentive to the fact that the merry-go-round has an odd number of sides and strange runes welded to the bottom, when suddenly they gasp as the ground beneath begins to leak a ghostly green, techno-green light sending out these sparks of electricity. And the grandparents call the kids over as the merry-go-round begins to spin faster and faster out of control. And we leave the scene with the family clinging to each other, watching as the energy begins to shoot from the area. And then cut back to a modern-day 2019, while Patty and the, the ladies where we left off, listening to the tape recorder where she overhears Zool which in the original and, and in this universe is the entity saying its own name and they don't know what it is. And so credits roll with an opening sequence. And one of the things that we really wanted to preserve with the sequel is just the goofiness. And so this opening sequence, we were thinking like cartoon sequences, sitcom sequences. So credits roll with an opening sequence with each of the Ghostbusters and the returning characters all doing something silly but character appropriate. So see Patty reading what appears to be a textbook, although we don't see the cover, and she seems to be studying very intently. Holtzman is tinkering with a crazy device doing something that's ultimately going to be dangerous. Abby walks by and Holtzman and Abby banter. Aaron comes over to passive-aggressively scold and then gets backed by an accidental spark. Kevin comes in announcing that sushi has arrived but it's a box of pizza that he's turned upside down. Oh, Kevin. And Aaron tells him she likes it better like that and asks if he wants to share a piece, but he says he can't. He's paleo and gluten-free, which means he's allergic to rice. And so Patty says to Holtzman, is he gluten intolerant? And Holtzman says, no, he himself is gluten-free. So at that point, the mayor's assistant shows up with a message from the mayor. The Ghostbusters are still unofficially on the mayor's payroll, being fully funded for their research. The problem is that the mayor's coming up for re-election. He's finishing his second term, and he wants a third term, obviously. So he's decided that the Ghostbusters are going to help him with that because they are urban-friendly, and it's going to be a boost to his flagging campaign. He's trying to force them to participate in a Little Busties program, getting inner-city kids interested in saying no to drugs while telling their teachers if they see anything suspicious. The mayor wants a theme song that says busting makes you feel good. And the horrified women have to convince him that that is not a good idea. Hijinks ensue when the women, none of whom have kids or are particularly matronly, are forced into a smallish room full of surly or overly hyper kids. All of them except Holtzman have a terrible time with this. She, on the other hand, brings a bunch of very small and very dangerous gadgets for the kids to try, so they love her, of course. One of the kids, however, steals a gadget, since she mostly lets her, and blows a hole in the wall, spoiling the event and putting the Ghostbusters at risk for losing funding. Fortunately, 
they get a chance to become more useful and to save some face because there's been a steadily growing increase of ghosts, some of them becoming pretty dangerous. The Ghostbusters become more and more overworked as the activity takes a sudden, sharp turn for the worse because it turns out that the cult of Gozer has been silently active for the past 3,000 years or so. Now, unfortunately for their cause, this new wave is really millennial cultists. All of their old leadership is dying off. The last of the true believers are old. Their parents are baby boomers who were slightly rebellious to the cult and kept it for their children as traditions without real power, like a secular Christmas. It's a way to spend the holidays. The modern cultists are lackadaisical and largely don't even believe there is a gozer. They know that key buildings, ley lines, stone figures, architectural features have been built into the city, but they don't know all of it. Although there are cult texts that Patty can discover later and reference to help the cause, but none of the newer kids have read them. But at the heart of it, there is there's a really ambitious elementary school teacher who is still young, still attractive, and not worn down by the wee little beasties yet, and her well-meaning, supportive boyfriend who count themselves amongst the true believers. The boyfriend mostly does it to unwind and have friends because he got kicked out of his fantasy football league and is a bit bored, but both of them have been raised by their hyper-focused grandparents and grew up together and saw some stuff happen for real. So they know the lore of the gatekeeper, key master, the portal. They know this is all legitimate. And then we find out over time that they were the kids from the opening scene. They weren't afraid of it. The grandparents were the ones causing it as a demonstration for the youngsters to learn the family business. So they believe that they will be rewarded if they become Zul and Vince Clortho, but they needed to conduct a couple of experiments before they committed to raising Gozer. Now, the girl was the one who was actually feeding information to Rowan from the first movie, information about the spirit dimension. They knew that activating the mandala energy might require some sacrifices and naturally wanted him to go first. The girl used the fact that Rowan was an outcast to get away with her manipulations. It was really easy to feed into his hatred of other people and to point him in the direction of Abby and Aaron's book while giving him other texts that would account for the information he had in the first movie and would kind of help him create the technology and the, the equipment that he had. Rowan's success was really useful for increasing the millennial cultist commitment as tallied by a gold star chart the girl uses to reward followers for completed tasks since she's an elementary school teacher. Now the cultists become Zul and Vince Clortho, release Gozer, no one is nearby when this happens, so Gozer assumes the form of a woman from a perfume ad, which is, of course, Kim Kardashian. This now becomes Attack of the 50-Foot Woman. The millennial cultists totally freak out. They FaceTime their parents to ask to be picked up. They tell them they're going to need bail money and they didn't even want this. Some of them, however, do run to Aaron and the other Ghostbusters and give them information that lets Patty identify where the playground and the merry-go-round portal are located. So they go to see if they can find some proton blasters and put some traps in place and go about their way uh, loaded down with some sick new gear from Holtzman. So Abby and Holtzman go to confront the giantess, but they're soon outclassed, even with air support from the city. It's a classic helicopters being swatted, King Kong style situation, and because it's Kim Kardashian, 
anytime she takes a sudden move around the skyscrapers or turns too sharply, her booty's going to knock some things over and cause some structural damage. Uh So because it was a perfume ad, is in full ball gown with massive rustles and sequins. And as she's fighting, the sequins are falling off and hitting all of the cars. Her ruffles are causing a mighty wind as she passes. Her heels are gouging the asphalt. And her weapon of choice is spraying people with this toxic perfume miasma while throwing giant contouring creams at people and bashing them with her makeup brushes. Fortunately, now she has a weakness, which is photography. If you take a picture, she poses and can be lured to specific places with cameras. So all of the millennial cultists are conscripted to lure her to the gate by pulling out their devices and taking pictures of her, which gives them time to set a trap near the gate to topple her. So when she comes near enough, the gang is focusing their beams on her, but she's resistant because she's very powerful. So they aim instead for the portal, which is originating at the original merry-go-round. Though they can tell it's weakening, it's not enough to close the gap. So fortunately, they're joined by the little girl from earlier who'd blown the hole in the community center wall. She pocketed a second blaster, which Holtzman knew and was totally cool with, and helps to save the day. So she's Next-gen little busty. The portal is destroyed and Kim K explodes in a shower of sequence, which is really going to leave a mess. At that point, the mayor sees his chance, of course, like any good politician, and gets some photo ops with the Ghostbusters, which helps him to win the next election, which is good for their four-year prospects. Now, back in the firehouse, we see Patty reading her book again. She says she's wrapping up her last paper for her master's degree, which turns out to be in history not science like we might have assumed the women are approached by a man in a military uniform and holtzman's mentor sigourney weaver from the end of the first one who has taken a job with the government the government might have use of their skills and would like to give them a chance to serve their country in an unofficial capacity they're torn of course because of their loyalty to new york but they're going to talk it out over chinese delivery with a perfectly balanced wonton soup which, of course, Kevin calls pizza. The end. <laughs> <laughs> Ghostbusters versus Kim K. All right. I was waiting for Kanye's cameo there. <laughs> oh, I think he was, too. <laughs> All right. Well, I, too, decided to take it in the direction of, let's see what happens directly after that first film. What is the life of the Ghostbusters following them saving New York once and not getting the credit? So I give you this film that will really infuriate the haters, titled The Real Ghostbusters. The Ghostbusters have been secretly working to eliminate paranormal threats for the city of New York, funded off the books by the mayor's office. The front for their activities is that the crew transform their business into a pest extermination firm called Ratbusters, driving vehicles outfitted with embarrassing mouse ears and tails. Abby has had enough, and Holtzman is fed up with the patents for her amazing technological innovations being filed with descriptions like rodent rig or mouse muncher. Erin is frustrated as well, since she was hoping to introduce a paranormal studies curriculum to Columbia University in an effort to get back a little of her academic credibility, which has now been completely tarnished. Ever the optimist, Patty gets a kick out of driving their mouse mobiles to earn a steady paycheck, and Kevin is still clueless. 
After a spike in paranormal incidents in public places, like a performance of the musical Hamilton, where the actual ghost of Alexander Hamilton appears and raps poorly, then a response to being booed spews ectoplasm on the audience? The city accepts the New Yorkers' desire to have their tax dollars pay for ghost eliminators. But instead of allowing the real quartet of experts to go public, the mayor's office hires a group of four male actors to portray an officially endorsed group of municipal Ghostbusters. After market research by Cecily Strong's character showed that citizens felt more comfortable with strapping young males handling their hauntings. The compromise is that the men, nicknamed G-Boys by our heroines, enter the front of reportedly haunted establishments to do a great fanfare and social media exposure, while the women are forced to sneak around the back entrances in ridiculous disguises. The female Ghostbusters handle the threat, while the posers take selfies or hit on the victims of the hauntings. Abby and Aaron are also having shared issues associated with their brief time in the portal at the end of the first film. Instead of a PKE meter, their hair just turns different colors based on the paranormal energy of the spook, specter, or ghost they encounter. During a call to a bar with a nasty apparition causing a ruckus, one of the G-Boys tries to show off for the female bartender, taking Aaron's proton pack to confront the surly ghost himself, ending up with his features frozen in a permanent scream face. This leads to Kevin being recruited to join the Fakers. Initially feeling betrayed, Abby has Holtzman attach a camera and microphone onto Kevin's glasses, and they post embarrassing footage online to discredit their rivals. Of course, Aaron also sneaks a peek of footage after hours, where Kevin's posing naked in front of a mirror at home, after accidentally turning on the monitor. Discovering the source of the videos, the city cuts off the Ghostbusters funding, seizes their Ghostbusting equipment, and hands it over to the G-Boys, who are now expected to actually handle the catching of the ghosts themselves. At the firehouse, Kevin innocently explains how Holtzman's different devices work based on his own skewed perception, which leads to massive damage and the containment unit being destroyed and releasing all the captured ghosts back into the city. Now trying to find their way in the real world, each of our Ghostbusters is dealing with the disappointment in different ways. Abby has taken a job in the kitchen of her favorite Chinese food restaurant, determined to find out the source of the wonton deficiency issue, which turns out to be Slimer. Holtzman does a complete 180, abandoning science to become a sultry lounge singer. Patty goes off to work at her uncle's mortuary and begins having comical conversations with the ghosts of corpses who are very particular about how she does them up for their open casket ceremonies. And with nothing left to do, Aaron's determined to find a man, subscribing to every online dating service. On one site, she hits it off with a guy named Nathan, who embraces her awkwardness and makes comments about her beauty. It's only when they finally meet in person at Abby's Chinese food restaurant that the truth about Nathan is revealed. Patty and Holtzman are visiting slash spying on the date, and Patty recognizes Nathan as one of the ghosts whose body she's been preparing for burial. Abby doesn't believe her, but when Aaron and Abby's hair start changing colors, the evidence is undeniable. This leads to some comedic conversations about the possibility of intimate ghost-human relationships, and Nathan admitting that he didn't want to leave the earthly plane before finding true love. Aaron decides she wants to try and make it work and the other Ghostbusters support her, though Holtzman very poorly hides the fact that she plans to take readings and study Nathan as often as possible. 
The romantic talk is interrupted by the mayor's assistant, Jennifer, who enters and says she's been tasked with hiring back the Ghostbusters to handle this infestation of ghostly apparitions. Abby, Aaron, Holtzman, and Patty agree to help, but with one demand. Then we'd quick cut to Jennifer reluctantly declaring at a press conference that they are the real Ghostbusters and giving them as much fanfare as the G-Boys always got. Returning to their firehouse headquarters, Kevin is found sleeping under a desk, having somehow dug a hole under the concrete to tunnel his way in. Then Patty points out that he could have just gone through a clearly visible open window. They forgive Kevin for joining the G-Boys, and he admits... He didn't realize there was ever a problem with their relationship. While the Ghostbusters put their heads together to come up with a plan to end the ghost epidemic, they notice Nathan's attraction to a certain chemical combination found when multiple beakers of liquid were knocked over in the lab by Kevin's tunneling. Holtzman and Abby determine it to be like a ghost pheromone and say that if they could create it in a large enough quantity, they could attract all the ghosts to one location and create a daisy chain of traps to capture all the ghosts again. The final action set piece finds Kevin and Patty driving boats around the New York Harbor while dumping the pheromone chemicals into the water and then superheating the surface to create a vapor that rises into the air to attract the ghosts. Meanwhile, Holtzman and Abby set up a trapping perimeter while Aaron and Nathan are playing ghost sniper in order to keep the area clear. Meanwhile, they decide to take a love quiz and continue their bonding. Of course, hijinks ensue, and everything does not go to plan, as the ghosts target their would-be jailers and try to thwart their efforts. And, you know, ultimately, Nathan has to sacrifice himself to save Aaron and the city of New York, getting sucked into a trap. And then I figured that the final scene would somehow end up with the gang at Nathan's actual funeral. And then he appears, or they release him, or something like that. So he, it kind of ends with him and Aaron, you know, really deciding to get serious. And then the end credit scenes would all be a lot of different gags just involving what it's like to live with a ghost. You know, things that don't work in a romantic relationship with a ghost. So they'd play with that a little bit as they uh, tease what's to come. So there you have it. The real Ghostbusters. All right, Jeff. Did you have anything for us? I don't really have a fully fleshed out plot. The one thought that I had, but I was thinking that, especially because people that were not in favor of the reboot and, and not letting it sing its own song, it would be interesting if a sequel went in a completely different direction. I thought it would be really interesting. Like, what if we did a straight horror movie? no comedy this is just a horror movie or maybe we make it a musical like something like that where you just you just go in a completely different direction and make it a different kind of a movie i thought that might be kind of interesting so your idea is just shake it up they didn't like that just make it totally out there and see if that sticks right well and again it's it's kind of that thing too of i feel like this cast deserves their movie don't make them try and make someone else's movie and so yeah to do it a whole different way you know, who knows? Like then, then, like you guys said, no comparison. We don't need to compare it to the original because this is clearly nothing like the original Ghostbusters now. So there we have it. Kristen, who do you vote for? You know, honestly, I think that you incorporated a lot of the comedic elements that were very on tone for Ghostbusters movies. And I liked a lot of the individual components. So I would vote for your pitch. Oh, there's one. Emily, how about you? I 
did really like a lot of the little elements. Like, I really liked the hair thing. I'd actually completely forgotten about them going through the portal and having that happen. I'm kind of torn, <laughs> to be honest. Well, and I because feel I always like... I love my own ideas. Exactly. And if they're not able to vote for their own, like then that seems like it's kind of unfairly weighted here. Well, the way I was looking at it, though, is that technically we could just scrap both our pitches if we voted for jeff's and we all literally just say what is the most 180 turn you could do for a sequel and we we all just throw out a few ideas there if we weren't going to continue with the fully fleshed out ones but as is obvious from your guys's pitches none of you guys think that though so (laughs) i feel like it almost just kind of comes down to my vote This is an exact science, this pitch voting. We've never quite nailed it down. Jeremy, where are you? That's true. The deciding vote. Well, Jeff, why don't we just take it from there then? Where do you fall? Yeah, since it does come down to me then. Well, to be perfectly honest, Adam, you almost had me at Patty going to Ernie Hudson's mortuary. And like that, I would watch just that movie. Like, I love Ernie Hudson. And if you're going to do the two of them running a mortuary together... Uh, yeah, I w- I'd be in for that one. But to be honest, some of the other elements, uh, uh, I-, I don't know. I would struggle with that. So I would go I would go with the girls one. I, I really like the way that you guys expanded upon the Gozer thing, even more so than the original, which at least for me, it sounds like what you guys were talking about is different enough from the original Ghostbusters that I don't think most people would even realize that we're talking about the same character. And I think that's a good thing. Yeah, and, and that's where I fall as well, because I felt like, yeah, the whole, you know, cult of Gozer, like, it was something that was hinted at in the first movie with Evo Shandor building the building and all that stuff. That was the purpose of, of Dana Barrett's apartment, you know, structure and all of that. So it felt to me like you guys picked up on so much of the lore, like you said, and then took it to another level where if Jeff's idea is to kind of change the tone a little bit maybe and see how that sits with people i think that could fit very well whereas you know mine tended to be probably a little bit goofier yours had humor but it kept like that adventurous tone to it as well i felt like there were serious stakes so i would have to vote for you guys as well so congratulations ladies your pitch but so one of the other clever things that i liked like you said is where you have this incident occur and then it's revealed later you know what the what the true intentions of all that was the the only question that i i guess i had was it felt like it was fairly plot driven so there was kind of like the main the mystery being uncovered what did you guys feel like is there a furthering of any of the specific relationships between the ghostbusters in this do you feel like there's going to be a conflict in their camp at all or did i forget that did i miss an element of that no, that was honestly one of the more difficult things to try and script through because when we got through the plot then we were looking at how much we had already written and how much time it was going to take to get through it and so much. <laughs> and so trying to script out an ensemble cast seemed like it would add quite a lot of time to the pitch. When what the director seemed to have done with the first one is to put women who have a chemistry from working on Saturday Night Live or from Bridesmaids into a scene where they were left to do a lot of improv on their own dialogue. And so the original director himself hadn't scripted a lot of what made it onto the actual film. And so there was an element 
of trusting that this ensemble would just be funny together. But, you know, any character ensemble really does have to have some kind of conflict that develops between them. So, you know, that that would be something to explore. Right. Because I'd be like, however, however light it was, and I felt like they didn't give it as much attention or weight as they meant to. But like in the first movie, the whole thing was Abby and Aaron building their relationship back up right like healing old wounds forgiving each other coming together and then you know that scene in the portal at the end is kind of the ultimate culmination of course i'm going to come in and save you and all that so there was that element of it but at this point that's mostly been smoothed over and i was wondering if there could be some sort of you know because again we're dealing with a cult right we're dealing with these people who have been indoctrinated in this case you know mostly children being raised up you know by their grandparents and all that stuff so i was wondering if it could somehow be holtzman is the one to me that i feel like you know again at the end of the first movie she gives this her awkward but impassioned speech about that they've given her a family and love but maybe like something happens where she feels a little outcast by them or something you know like she gets offended and falls in with the cult but then it's ultimately like her love of this family and these friends that have accepted her that pulls her out of it at the end i didn't know if that would wreck too much of the plot but i felt like that could be something happening within maybe that because you're saying that Holtzman is the one at the the school who seemed to do fine, you know, the rest of them can't adapt, but she can. And maybe that kind of plays into her being indoctrinated somehow. And Here's my thing about Holtzman. Holtzman does so much stuff in the background that kind of draws your attention. Uh, she, she steals the scene in nearly every scene that she's in. So I didn't want to have her be too front and center because if you put Holtzman in the front, then you're not going to see anyone else. So I really wanted to have more focus on Patty. But again, we didn't really have time to, to expand okay. on that too much. Um, one of the things that I did agree with when reading some of the reviews on the movie is that they really had to commit to all or nothing when it comes to diversity and inclusion and turning expectations on their heads and going in new directions for characters. And so one of the points I agreed with was, and that Emily made as well, is that we felt it sucks that Patty is the one relegated to the whole street smarts angle. It would have been the only one that isn't a scientist or doesn't have a PhD. Sorry. Yeah. It would have been fantastic to either have seen her in the role of a scientist from the beginning or to point out that, um, you know, she's a very educated individual and that she has things to contribute, but we would have liked to have seen more diversity because she's really the only individual of color that has any kind of screen presence. So while I wouldn't necessarily put Holtzman in a super front position, it would be good to see some of her background elements included and, and eased in. I'm a fan of Sigourney Weaver, so anytime we can get more of her mentorship involved, that'd be great. But I also do feel that Aaron needs a little bit of beefing up. I agree. I agree. Well, and that's the one thing, like you were saying before, Adam, about how the characters are more unique than we give them credit for at points. But the one thing that I would say, like, that Winston and, and Patty are both the everyman. 
where they're not geniuses, they're not, you know, scientists, they're not, they're just the person that kind of gets roped into this. Winston was just looking for a job. Patty just happened to be kind of getting roped up into it. So I agree, like, it'd be really interesting. And they never, I felt like they never built Winston's character in any of the Ghostbusters original movies. So it'd be interesting to give Patty a little bit more faculty. Like, what if in the time, in the three movies, the three years in between these movies, what if she's been taking correspondence courses or something like that? And they like kind of like look down on her. And she's like, no, we've been going to school for years and years and we're professors and blah, 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 blah. And that she does actually have to solve something or some sort of knowledge that she has gained, like enables them to, to succeed. Yeah, I mean, I, I could see that, that storyline playing to say, yeah, like she wants to be on the same intellectual level with them to contribute as much as she can and they're 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 still seeing her in the old role i think that that could be very valuable um plus the fact that you know for ghostbusters fans who know originally winston's character was like a highly educated scientist like that's why ernie hudson was excited about it because and they cut all of his scenes out Winston was so much more of a key character and they Seriously? totally rewrote it. Yeah, he was That's a scientist. Not cool. oh, yeah. Wow. And so they just decided to emphasize Bankman and kind of push Winston to the back and that's why he shows up so late in the movie and everything else. So I wonder too, and I mean again cuz cuz Winston was always my favorite character that he's supposed to be, I mean I guess in the original, I mean you also identify with uh with yeah, Bill Murray's character, but like he, he's the closest to someone we can relate to because we're not all scientific geniuses. So if you turn all four of them into geniuses, do you lose relatability? Do, do Like if we elevate Patty, do we need to kind of make somebody else a little bit more every man or woman for that matter? Well, that's why when we decided to have Patty um, studying and, and going to school and taking classes, we had her going for history. And funny thing, like we had decided on this this history course before we looked on the Wikipedia and found out that she is actually supposed to have a, a bachelor's of arts in history. So this is her master's in history that she's working on. Uh-huh. And the whole architecture and history of the cult is something that she is going to be very useful in helping with because she knows New York so well and she knows its history so well. So that's part of what went into our, our pitch. So would the conflict come in that she feels disrespected? Because if it's just she's becoming more and more fat, then like that's not a conflict. Well, it's really tricky because one of the things that a female ensemble wants to avoid is woman versus cattiness. woman. Yeah. Cattiness, yeah. competition. You know, I'm never going to be super excited about a plot that pits two women together to fight over a man. Like, right. over right. or... The the drive is always towards uh, respecting individual contributions, and I would think right. that the original actresses and the writers probably were trying to be very mindful about the relationship between the women not being one of competition in that respect. But at the same time, you know, if you remove all sources of conflict, then you remove a lot of reality and the way that relationships can progress. So finding the balance to answer the question of how do you introduce realistic conflict that doesn't involve 
women tearing women down. Well, I, I think the way I see it, it could work if, if we if we focus around that just again as like a just like a, a relationship, an emotional situation that they're dealing with. I, I like the idea that whenever they're talking to the mayor or whenever like they're putting together the plans, maybe they are just kind of talking over Patty because they're and they're maybe they're just getting too technical with things and like they're not listening to what she's saying. So at a certain point, she's just like, you know, she does get a little hurt. You know, they're not openly attacking her, but they're not being as sensitive as they could. So she just kind of decides maybe she could go back and work at her Cole's, you know, mortuary for a little while. You know, maybe we could work in the gag that Jeff likes so much with just her being able to talk to the ghosts of the corpses, you know, and maybe that could somehow factor in like maybe she gets some information from one of the the ghosts that she can take back to them as they're, as they're trying to you know wrap everything up with the the you know the giant kim and all of that like so maybe patty is coming in towards the end and helping with that because did, did you say that the final conflict to take down giant kim is that the cult kids or the cultists realize it's a problem and they kind of change their attitude yes so the non-believers or the you know half-hearted people are looking around like destroy the city but i live here and lack the murderous conviction one needs to set goes or the destroyer on the world so yeah it would be you know them providing key information that would allow Patty to use her street smarts and her knowledge of New York to pinpoint where this portal they're describing actually is in this park with this merry-go-round. Yeah, I think what could work then with that is that Patty does take a step away and is maybe out of it for a little bit. And what she starts putting the pieces together and then she has a conversation with a ghost. She gets information and takes it to the cultist. Maybe she's part of, you know, in addition to them saying, well, they're destroying your city. Maybe she kind of tweaks their perspective in a way that maybe the rest of the team was focusing on technology and tactical attacks to try to contain giant Kim. Whereas Patty's like, no, it's about emotion. It's about relationship. It's about all that. And that's kind of like the greater lesson of the story. Maybe that again could have an emotional resonance with the the team and with the, the story as a whole, if you're up for that. I mean, it's always good to value intelligence in all forms and, you know, street smarts is definitely something the other Ghostbusters don't necessarily have because they've been spending their time in a lab in academia. So she brings a really valuable balance. So finding a way to turn that balance into a source of conflict that leads to a relationship growth is a really great idea. Now, tell me again. So there's the two kids, right? There was a brother and sister that had been raised up by their grandparents. Is no, that right? And... These are these are uh, a boyfriend and girlfriend who both oh. happen to have been raised in, in the cult. Oh, I see. So they, they found each other, but they're not they're not related otherwise. Okay. Yeah, probably yeah. like the grandparents were friends or something. So what are we thinking casting wise for them for that kind of role? Did you guys have somebody in mind already? It would need to be somebody really sweet faced who can pull off a pretty good about face and and get very sinister and ambitious because i I immediately go like to the cast of pitch perfect and now i'm trying to like pick people out of there i think carrie mulligan has that like super innocent look 
Chloe Grace Moritz always has a lot of range to her. She could probably pull that off. Anna Kendrick's the one from Pitch Perfect. She does a really good sweet face, and I could see her doing that well. Yeah, that's who I was thinking of, yeah. What if we try and redeem the two people? What was that? Mortal Engines. Hera Hilmar and Robert Sheehan. I don't know how they were, because no one saw that movie, but if you did... I read the books and I was like, all right, I'm, you know, reading the books in preparation for the movie. And then the movie like passed by me so fast. I was like, is that my hair? I was like, yeah. was like cold in here. What was it? Was that the movie? Or by the same token, you could, the actors from, what, what was that Luke Besson movie from last year? Oh, um, Valerian. Yeah, Valerian. Oh yeah. my gosh. I actually really like that one. That was I actually did not. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I saw Future it. Future episode. I like, yeah, I was going to say, interesting uh, visuals, I could say that. They have kind of hard faces, though. Do you know what I mean? They don't look uh, that's sweet. That's true. It's very hard for her to look sweet in particular. Yeah, Dehan but... looks like he hasn't slept in 10 years. Right? I mean, I'm always more on board for somebody like Anna Kendrick, just because she could do a pretty great about face. But I feel like Anna Kendrick is such a big name at this point that she kind of upstages our heroines at this But point. you wanted it to be a musical, Jeff. <laughs> but it's not going to be, though. Yeah, what's uh, Lily Collins or like Emma Roberts doing these days? Emma Roberts is just in a movie called Little Italy that apparently was really terrible. <laughs> Some Canadian romantic comedy with uh, Hayden Christensen. Well, there you go. Well, I'm glad he's still got work. (laughs) Good for him. Are you really? No, I am. I really liked him in Shattered Glass. What about Jumper? I did not see that, but I really liked him in Shattered Glass. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, if, if we're not thinking big name. Oh, the actress who played Freddie Mercury's girlfriend in Bohemian Rhapsody, Lucy Boynton. She's got a nice sweet face. I think she could do well with that. I haven't seen her act intense, but... So she could turn on us pretty easily. I see it. And for the the baby-faced boy actor then... You know who I was just thinking of? I was watching a movie last night, which was the Reign of the Superman animated movie. <laughs> and I don't know if anybody was, was aware of that. But there was a guy who played Superboy. And I was looking him up. I, and I, I just on IMDb, just out of curiosity, I'm like, who was this guy? And uh, his name is Cameron Monaghan. Is he He's from Shameless. No, no, oh, no. Okay. He's the redheaded brother from Shameless, which I've never seen, but I, I have seen st- pictures of them in it. And yeah. he played, um, he's in Gotham as he's well the as the he's Joker Batman. guy. Oh, oh wow. Joker? Okay. No, he's the Joker. Cameron oh. Monaghan is the Joker kid. Oh, he's the Joker. Yeah, well, yeah. I, I don't know if at this point he's been established well, as the actual he's Jerome Valeska. He, yeah, he's that guy. Yeah. Yeah, he he wow. looks he looks like again because he's got a baby face, but then he's got these evil pictures too. So you're kind of like, okay, I could see it. So that'd be good then. So we got a Cameron Monaghan and Lucy Boynton. Lucy Boynton. Okay, so there there are villains and Kim. Kim, get back in there. All right. What what was Kim's last movie role? Let's look that up here. Oh, I don't. <laughs> I'm sure you want to uh, do that. That could be trouble. Uh, oh, no. Confessions of a Marriage Counselor with Beyonce. That was uh Is that a real thing? Did that is that? a real thing. Wow. Yeah, that, it was a Tyler Perry movie. 
Uh... Oh, she was in Ocean's Eight, as previously uh, mentioned. Was so. She? I yeah, I, I saw that. I didn't remember her in it, but she must have just been at that event, okay. that big fashion event or whatever it was. Yeah, as herself. All right, well, there you have it. The continuation of the Ghostbusters 2016 universe. We'll see if we set the internet on fire with this one. We'll leave you with this. So, obviously, there is the new Ghostbusters coming out in 2020, did you watch the teaser trailer? Anybody? Uh, no, I, I heard about, I heard that they were making it when I was driving to work one day and I was like, Oh, well, that's very disappointing that they refusing <laughs> to do that instead of a movie that I want to see. But, um, okay. Guess that happened. So th- this is what I'll tell you about it. So right now, again, it's just a teaser trailer. I mean, it's not coming out till 2020. So they literally probably have not rolled film on the actual movie at this point. But, the, you know, the, it's basically just like kind of a creepy farmhouse and the camera's just zooming in until it enters the door. And you kind of see these familiar pink and bluish type of lights kind of zapping around and stuff. And, uh, and then it, it uses pieces of the original Ghostbusters score. So not the Ghostbusters theme song, but the actual score. And here's what someone had to say about this now, just two weeks ago. Wow, I remember when the 2016 reboot was announced, I was like, meh. But this, this... The music, the setting, the display of things, the sound effects, the Ecto-1 chills down my spine. So (laughs) all you had to do is drop in some of the old score. Suddenly people are on board. Apparently. Maybe we'll be back five years from now discussing that film and how it turned out. Thank you so much, Kristen and Emily, for coming back. Hope it was fun this time around as well. Thank you, everybody, for listening. Be sure to go ahead and keep an eye out for the upcoming episodes of Sequel Quest. But also, don't forget, Jeff and I doing the Two Goofs podcast behind the scenes in the Disneyland character department. We're just uh, releasing our second episode following this one coming out. So keep connected with us. And until next time. This episode of Sequel Quest and invite you to join us next week for another discussion about a film that never was. Share your ideas with the Sequel Quest universe by visiting SequelQuestPod.com, following us on Twitter at SQPod, on Facebook by searching Sequel Quest, or sending an email to SequelQuestPod at gmail.com. Let the world know how much you enjoy the show by leaving a review and five-star rating on iTunes. All films and characters discussed on Sequel Quest are the property of their respective studios and license holders. No copyright infringement is intended. 